Uh, Deuteronomy 12, verses 5 to 12, and it says, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have, n- have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over to the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, so that you shall live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you will present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your towns since he has no portion or inheritance with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, kids. Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here at City Light. Really good to be going through Deuteronomy 12 with you. And in a moment, we'll dive into that text. But just before that, uh, I wanted to bring something before you as a church. So at City Light, we have a committee who are responsible for City Light as an incorporated association, which means that they are the people who are responsible for upholding the legal and financial integrity of the church. Now, I realize that's not as exciting as the announcement about Christmas and carols and all of that. But while it doesn't sound very exciting, the committee is the kind of thing that doesn't matter until it matters, right? That it's the kind of thing that you don't really think that much about until something goes wrong and then it really matters. That you'd have a committee that are well organized, have good processes and people in the right places. And so we take appointments to the committee very seriously. And we, at the moment, the committee is made up of Leah Davies, Rob Ainsley, Cam Lyon, Geordie Armsworth, and myself. Um, But on behalf of the committee, I wanted to bring before you the nomination of Anna Brotherson. Now, Anna has been a member of this church for a number of years now. Um, She's a part-time lecturer at Sydney Missionary and Bible College. She's worked in the field of linguistics. She's also served as a missionary in an overseas context in Asia for over a decade. And I think Anna, as a follower of Jesus... And as a woman who is godly and servant-hearted, will be a great addition to the committee. But we bring it before the church because on the 13th of December, before the event where David Bennett, who's the author of A War of Loves, will be presenting at our church building, just before that, we'll hold a general meeting where we'll vote on her nomination. And as we do with all nominations, you have between now and then to bring any concerns to the committee that you may have about her nomination. Now, to find out how you can get in contact with us, that's on the membership page on the website, but also don't feel like you have to write all this down. You'll get an email this week with all the same information going back over it. But that's something just to bring to your attention and to be including in your prayers this week as you think about church and see like going forward. So that's one thing to kick us off with. But right now, we are going to get into Deuteronomy 12. 
And so the, the teaching that is throughout the book of Deuteronomy on sacrifice. Each week so far, we've kind of gone one chapter at a time. And this is the first week where we're actually going to be dipping into a couple of chapters in Deuteronomy. Where we're following a theme that comes up again and again. The theme of sacrifice, but more importantly, the theme that God forgives. In 1890, Oscar Wilde wrote a book called The Picture of Dorian Gray. And it's a book kind of about I don't know, 19th century hedonism and vice and all of this. It doesn't sound like it's particularly, pre- uh, particularly relevant. But as I go through the story, I think you'll see why I'm picking up on it. The story kind of goes like this. And there are a couple of spoilers in here, but you've had 130 years to get across this text. So if you've missed it by now, I'm sorry. That's, that's on you. But Dorian's a good-looking lad, and he lives a pretty selfish and luxurious lifestyle. But one day, a painter friend comes and does a portrait of him, and he falls in love with this picture of himself. But as his life goes on, and he acts more and more wickedly and more cruelly to the people around him, he notices that the portrait is actually changing. That every time he sees it, his face looks more cruel and gnarled and grotesque. And that as his character is devolving, the portrait kind of becomes a living picture of his soul. And he starts to be so infuriated about this that he almost wants someone to blame. And at one point, his friend who painted the picture comes over to visit him. And he sees the portrait, and it's so grotesque and unrecognizable that the painter himself only really believes that it's his painting because he sees his signature in the bottom corner and realizes this is the genuine article. And at that point, he confronts his friend over his wickedness, and Dorian kills him. But then the story kind of spirals. Instead of repenting of this or, or confessing, he actually gets worse and worse as a person. He treats people more cruelly. He becomes more selfish. But more than that, he has a guilty conscience that he cannot escape. And so he ends by spending his life kind of trawling the opium dens and brothels and all these sort of things. And we get this quote at the end of the book. It says this, Blood had, had been spilt. For that, nothing could be done. But though forgiveness was impossible, forgetfulness was possible still. And he was determined to forget, to stamp the thing out, to crush it as you might crush a snake after it has bitten you. He believes that there is nowhere on all earth that he can find forgiveness for what he has done. And so he devotes his life to addiction in order to forget what's happened. He never deals with it and instead he tries to run from it the rest of his life. Now, while this book was written over 100 years ago, how many people in this city right now, because they don't believe that forgiveness is available, are running to addictions of all kinds? Whether that be trying to plug the wounds with alcohol, with sex, narcotics, with overwork, or maybe a toxic mix of all of these. There are people who are running from themselves or punishing themselves because they don't believe that there's anywhere that could be found a clean and pure forgiveness something that would genuinely make them new. Well, the central promise of the gospel is that God forgives. And central to the life of God's people in the Old Testament, in the section that we're about to read from right in the beginning of the Bible, all the way through to the new, is that God forgives and he makes a way to be made new and forgiven and made clean. And what we're going to see is that in Deuteronomy, for God's people, right from the beginning of their life, even before they entered the land that God was going to give them, He wanted to establish with them that they would be able to find forgiveness by his provision of a sacrifice. 
that he wanted to build into the life of Israel a reminder again and again and again that forgiveness, clean, pure and eternal can be found in God and God alone. And so my hope and prayer this morning is that if you've never experienced this forgiveness, that actually this morning might be the first time you really genuinely experience it. And that if you have experienced this forgiveness, if you know Jesus, that it would go deeper into your heart and life than ever before. But we need God's help in this, so I'm going to pray that this would be the case. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that though we are sinners, that you are a merciful God, that you forgive and that you make a way back to you. So Father, as we look at your word, at your call for your people to sacrifice, we might remember that the ultimate sacrifice for us has been made in Christ Jesus. And may it be our joy and our hope and our peace. Amen. We're diving into a section of the Old Testament called Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Bible. And it's one of the very oldest parts of the Bible. It's written pre-1000 you know, BC. And so it's a very foreign part of the world. So if you are new to church or you're just visiting this week, don't be surprised if some of the places and names seem unfamiliar. That's a big reason of why. But so far in this story, God has created a whole nation starting with one single couple. And he's built them out to this incredible nation. They were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt under Pharaoh, who was the greatest power in the known world at the time. And God rescued them out miraculously. And he hasn't left them homeless or wandering. He has promised to take them into a land where they will be established, where they will be his people living under his rule and under his blessing. And what we see in Deuteronomy is it's kind of the, it's the pre-game briefing. Just before they go into the land, they've stopped and they're going back over everything that God has commanded, saying, this is what you're meant to live like as my people. This is how you're going to be different from the nations around you. And so with that in mind, we hit Deuteronomy 12, where he's about to give them instructions as to how they are to be different in how they worship God as opposed to the nations around them and how they worship the false gods. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 12. It says, These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the, in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. And you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So here he's saying, as you go into this land, you will drive out a nation that are in there, and you're to leave no trace of their religious culture behind. Now as you hear that, I'm sure the first question in your mind is, this doesn't sound like a very religiously tolerant society that God is setting up. But that isn't actually what's going on here. What's happening here is far more significant than that. See, why is God doing this? The reason that it leave no trace of the religion of the people who were formerly in that land, the reason that it leave nothing behind, is because this religion was steeped in wickedness. Listen to what it says at the end of the chapter in Deuteronomy 12.31. It says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire of their gods. So the reason this religion needed to be erased 
was that it involved child sacrifice. And God is saying, you are not to participate in anything like that. Many other ancient Near Eastern religious, religions practiced wicked things, like sexual slavery, like ritual sacrifice. And God is like, you are not to participate in anything like that. You're to, to erase every possible trace of it. These weren't benign religions. They weren't doing yoga and putting magic happen stickers on their cars. It wasn't just minding their own business kind of stuff. This was a wicked regime. And part of the reason God is sending them into, their, into this land is for judgment on that. Because the truth is, when wicked regimes rule, it is a matter of justice that they be cast out. Regimes like the Taliban. Even listening to an interview this week with a single woman now living life under the Taliban in fear of her life daily and declaring that she actually, in her, in her traveling goods, keeps the means to end her own life if she should ever be arrested or fear that she would be arrested. We're talking about people living in daily and constant fear. It's wickedness. And so God's people are meant to go into this land as a matter of justice, to cast out these unjust nations and their wicked practices. And so God says that's what you are not to do. As you head into this land, you are not to be like the nations around you. You are meant to be a just nation. You're meant to be under God's good rule and you're meant to be a demonstration of what humanity can look like when it thrives and when justice is done. And so he says you're not to do that. And so now he gives the instructions of what they are to do. Look what he says in Deuteronomy 12, 5 and 6. It says, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the, your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of, your her of the herd of your flock. They are not to sacrifice children like the nations before them did, but they are to have a sacrifi sacrificial system that operates entirely differently. And he says to them, you're not to do it kind of free form as we're doing it at the moment, because right now they're in the desert and they're living in tents and they're moving constantly. He says, you're going to go into the land and God's going to designate a place, Jerusalem, the capital, where there will be a temple. And there you are to make sacrifices. And the whole of the sacrificial system, and there were many different ones, were all about a way to deal with their guilt and sin and to find forgiveness in God. There were sacrifices for sins of all kind that could be offered. And the pattern was always this. The deal was that the animal would take the penalty for the sin, that their life would be taken in sparing the life of a human, and through this, that they could be, there could be made a way to forgiveness. And now to modern ears, this all sounds quite depressing. Imagine that being part of, this, of Israel's life was this constant reminder through these rituals of sacrifice that you guys are sinners, you guys are sinners, you guys are sinners. It seems quite morbid to continue to focus on that the whole time. And people have made this observation or objection about Christianity throughout the ages. Friedrich Nietzsche was a German or Prussian at the time, philosopher and poet, and he hated Christianity. And the, the teaching about sin in particular was one of the key things that he hated the most. And he said this, he said, Christianity needs sickness. Making sick is the true hidden objective of the church's whole system of salvation procedures. One is not converted to Christianity. One must be sufficiently sick for it. Now, a couple of things from this quote. 
Firstly, did Nietzsche a hundred years ago pioneer the phrase sick for it? <laughs> I don't know. It's, to me, that sounds like a great title for a, a series on the gospel, just sick for it. Anyway, <laughs> but you get the other point that he's making. His objection is that the, the, the church is really kind of set up just to make you feel bad. That's what this whole system is about. Why this morbid focus on sin? Well, this is the thing. The focus wasn't on sin and on guilt. It was on the forgiveness that was available. It was on the fact that God was to make a way to be made clean from our sin, to be made new. Look at what he says further on in the chapter. It says, But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety... Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and female servants, and the Levite that is within your town, since he has no portion and inheritance with you. Here he says the whole point of this is that as you do this, as you contribute these sacrifices and these many festivals that they had, the result would be joy. That it was a celebration that God would make a way for his people to be one with him and that they would actually celebrate it together. It wasn't a morbid reflection only on our own unworthiness, but on the fact that there was a way to be made right with God. See, in order for Nietzsche's criticism to be right, two things would have to be true. One, that we are entirely innocent. And we don't really have any guilt that needs dealing with. And two, that Christianity involves only acknowledging and dwelling upon our sinfulness rather than God's mercy, his goodness and forgiveness. See, listen to how one psychologist puts it. He says, just so long as a person lives under the shadow of real, unacknowledged and uncleansed guilt, he cannot accept himself. He will continue to hate himself and to suffer the inevitable consequences of self-hatred. But the moment he begins to accept his guilt and sinfulness, the possibility of radical reformation opens up, and with this, a new freedom of self-respect and peace. The sacrificial system was about dealing with real guilt before God and having a way to say, look, God, we don't know how you're going to do this, but we trust that if you say this is the way to do it, that it's on you and that we are, made, we are washed and made clean. And this was built into the fabric of Israel they would remember it, that they would know that God is a God who forgives. And because of this, one of the biggest events in their calendar was a festival that kind of remembered this. What they celebrated as a nation was something called Passover. And it was not just a kind of a, a, a week-long celebration, which, by the way, we're really missing out on that in Western societies. We just have a day here or there. What about a week-long jamboree? That's the, that's the way to do it properly. But not only that, I mean, yeah, whoever says jamboree anyway, and whatever that is. <laughs> but not only that, we don't have any equivalent where we have a clear celebration that also explains to us our story of how we became a people. I mean, the closest thing we have is Australia Day, and even that's contested ground about what that says about us as a people or not. But for them, it wasn't the case. That for Israel, Passover was a clear origin story that explained to them how they came to be a people. And what the God was like who made them into a people. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 16. It says, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. 
For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you, re you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh of the sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. And there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. Now Passover was this. Israel were enslaved as a people group, as a nation. And God, through Moses, directly threatened Pharaoh and said, Look, if you do not let my people go, I'll bring judgment on your land. And he brings nine plagues on the land, one after the other. And every time Pharaoh either resists or he says, Yeah, you know what, you're right, I'm going to let the people go. And then he backs out of his promise. And then God says, All right, one final judgment. I'll bring death to the land of Egypt. And this finally will be the thing that actually causes Pharaoh to do what is right and to let an entire people group go free. But it's interesting with this final judgment that God sends a command to his people as well. God says, I'm going to visit this land in judgment. But if you want to be spared, you need to take a lamb without blemish to kill it and put its blood on the doorpost. And if you do that, judgment will pass over your house. Now the interesting thing about this is all the other plagues only affected Egypt. But this one, in order for Israel to be spared, they need a sacrifice that God's judgment may pass over them. It's not just the bad guys or the Egyptians that need something in their place. It's not just the Egyptians who have sin that needs dealing with. It's the Israelites as well. And through Passover, it was a reminder that God rescued them not only from the unjust tyranny of Pharaoh, but of the justice of heaven as well, from the just anger of God. Now the idea that God would be angry at sin is probably one of the most confronting claims of the gospel, isn't it? But it's strange also because this in some ways is one of the most intuitively right things about God. The right response to actual injustice, especially if it's visited upon you personally, is initially anger. When a, when a verdict in a court case is passed and a, a criminal gets justice, they are rightly punished. When that happens, occasionally, if it's a, a, a case of significant kind of national profile, you'll see there'll be cameras and that sort of thing filming the reactions of the families of the victim. And when a just verdict is delivered, you can visibly see anger passing by and sometimes there is even grief or sometimes even relief and joy that the right thing has been done. But when an unjust verdict is passed, when a criminal gets away with injustice, the anger remains undealt with, doesn't it? And if it's a case that has implications for a wider community, it can often result in rioting and public rage. Because when injustice is done, it must be punished in order for anger to be dealt with. It is right for God to be angry at sin and to punish sin. 
And not only that, but God is not in a position to overlook sin. That there is no authority higher than him in the universe that would appoint him as a judge. But we even know that judges who are appointed, it's not at their whim to sort of just give verdicts offhand or to let people go scot-free. When a judge fails to do what is just, what happens is vigilantes take justice into their own hands. And we've seen that happen. But God, who is sovereign over the universe, must do justice. By the nature of being God, he must do it. And where there is sin, it is right for him to be angry and to punish. And what this means as sinners is that God's anger is toward us and those who have sinned. That we too must face justice. But what Passover was, was a reminder that God would provide a way, a sacrifice, in order that his anger may pass over us. That he might forgive, and not only forgive, but then pour out his love and his favor upon us. And the reason that Israel rehearsed this year after year was a reminder that God forgives and that it would give way to celebration, that after the sacrifice there would be joy. But you have to ask, as you consider Israel doing this year after year after year as they lived in the land, that the question must have come up in the Hebrew mind, how is it possible that an animal could stand in as a substitute for a human? And why is it that we have to do this every year? And why is it that there are so many sacrifices again and again and again and again? Well, the truth was that those never actually did take away sin. That they were a placeholder, a shadow, as we're told in the New Testament, of the true Passover lamb that would come. Come with me to Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, we see the meaning of why Israel did this stuff over and over and over again. It says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But, it, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The sacrificial system was a shadow. It was a reminder that in order for sin to be dealt with, there had to be a punishment. And for us, it had to be someone else who was going to take it because we ourselves could not pay it. And every year, Israel must have been like, look, we trust you, God, that you have a way of dealing with this. We don't know how these animals actually can actually do that, but we trust that you are going to be able to do it. And it wasn't until God himself in flesh came down and died in our place that we saw how it was that God had planned all along to deal with sin. That through Jesus, God would take on the punishment for sin himself that we might be set free. That Jesus was the once for all Passover lamb. And the reason that we no longer sacrifice animals year after year is as a reminder that it has been done and it has been dealt with and finished. The debt has been paid. I just want you to think about this for a moment. Imagine how it would feel 
if you, were to, if you had found yourself in a debt that you could not pay, a debt that was so large that all you could do in offering all of your spare income was to even just not even pay down the principal, but just to, to pay against the interest. And knowing constantly that the debt was getting higher and higher and piling up on you. The knowledge that it was only a matter of time before you wouldn't be able to make a payment and that punishment was coming. The stress of not being able to eat properly or dress properly because all of your money was going into this debt. And imagine how it would feel if someone came along who you had no obligation to and who had no obligation to you and paid the debt outright. Imagine how that would feel to know the debt was paid and it was completely done, never to visit you again. It's over. It's finished. This is what Jesus did in ending the sacrificial system by dying on the cross. In fact, that's why when he's just before he gives up his life, he says, it is finished. It's done. The ransom had been paid. That Christ's blood was enough to atone for the sins of the whole world, that anyone who believes in him is washed clean and made new. That's why when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. If you are here and you trust in Christ, just reflect on how free and irreversibly forgiven you are in Jesus. You are washed clean, made new, that you are now in a whole new realm of grace, that there is now no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus, that the final verdict over your soul is that God declares you righteous innocent beloved like his own dear son that means that no other verdict from people or even from yourself can stand against it because if you trust in christ the verdict over you is that you are a child of god just consider the the glory of that the hopefulness of that do you know that one day that right now it is true of you that you are made innocent but one day you will stand before the throne of God and he will welcome you home forever. And all because of the finished work of Jesus. So what does this mean for us as followers of Christ? Well, for one, praise God that we don't have to sacrifice a baby lamb here this morning, especially if you're on pack-up team, because that would be a grim mess to clean up afterwards. But praise God that we don't do it, just as Israel did it year after year as a reminder that the debt for sin had not been paid, that we don't do it as a reminder that it has been paid, that all our guilt and shame is cast upon Jesus, that it is finished. And so with that, it means that we should have before God a humility like we looked at last week, but also a boldness to come before God. There are two attitudes that are, that are unbefitting of the gospel in approaching God. One, obviously, would be arrogance and entitlement to come to God like you might demand things from him. Is thoroughly, it's thoroughly unfitting, isn't it? Knowing that he sent his son to die in your place. But here's one that also is unfitting. To come to God groveling before him. I don't know if you've seen, like most people would have, but you've seen the Harry Potter movies. One of the most cringy parts, and I think it goes on longer in the book, is that uh, there's a, an elf servant called Dobby that comes to Harry Potter 
And the kind of back, look, I don't know enough about the whole background of it all, but I think the background is elves are just, they're house slaves, and so they, they beat themselves, and they're just like, they're these entirely subjugated, do you, what do you call it, species? What's magical terms for that? <laughs> Whatever it is. That, that's, their, that's their whole lot in life. But the way he cringes and cowers before Harry Potter is meant to make you feel somewhat uncomfortable. And you can feel Harry feeling uncomfortable about it. He's almost embarrassed that someone would relate to him like this because it's thoroughly inappropriate. If Christ has made the sacrifice and you are set free from sin and shame and guilt, the author of Hebrews says that we are to approach the throne of grace with boldness. Not with hubris or arrogance, but with a boldness and a confidence. Not a coweringness, not a questioning, will not, will or will not God forgive me? But to know that if he has sent his son for you, your debt is wiped clean. And that you can approach God as your heavenly father. You can approach him in prayer with confidence, with gospel-driven confidence, knowing that you are loved by him. We are to be a people marked because of the gospel by humility and boldness. Because Christ alone is our, is our Passover lamb, the once-for-all sacrifice. I'm going to pray. Father, we praise you that you, when there was no way back to you and no possibility to pay our own debt, paid it for us in Christ. That you ransomed us. So, Father, we praise you that you would do this and that this might be our joy and our hope. So, Father, we pray that you'd bring about in us a gospel humility, but also a gospel boldness. That we would know that it's Satan who stands and accuses us, and yet because of the blood of Jesus, his accusations will be found wanting. That your verdict over us will stand. That in Christ Jesus our sin has been exchanged for his righteousness, and in him we are a new creation. And so, Father, we pray that we would live accordingly for the glory of your name. Amen.